What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 224. It's from our latest question and answer session at our seminar at CrossFit South Brooklyn, May 2023. We've got everything in this Q&A session from sleep apnea severity, risk of performance-enhancing drugs, high-intensity interval training versus zone 2 cardio, and much, much more. So stay tuned for this week's podcast on Barbell Medicine. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. They've got belts for all applications, whether it's powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, CrossFit, or just general strength conditioning. Check out podcast 219 for info on how belts work and how to choose a belt. My general recommendation is for most people who are not going to a powerlifting meet, they're just training for general strength, health, etc. Get a four inch belt, 10 millimeters all the way around, not tapered, and using a single prong or lever attachment. Pioneer actually has an industry exclusive their, uh, with their lever attachment. It has micro adjustments, uh, whereas most lever belts, you need to move the lever out or in. Um, there's micro adjustments, actually, so you don't need to have tools in your weightlifting bag. They also make custom belts, and their turnaround time is pretty good. So check out Pioneer Belts. It's at generalleathercraft.com. It's trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories, and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside the gym for men and women. I've had these core shorts now for it's about five months, and most of the time I shred a pair of shorts within that time just from deadlifts, squats, etc., just being in the gym. And these have held up really, really well. They're super comfy and stretchy. So I 10 out of 10 would recommend these shorts. Also, the Rise Tee. It's probably going to be one of my favorite t-shirts that I have in my uh, catalog of t-shirts. And, and honestly, at that price point, I'm really, really impressed with it. Uh, it's held up well, uh, doesn't require any special washing techniques. And for me, yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. I can wear it out if, uh, if I'm meeting people and I need to have a nice t-shirt on or if I'm just casually hanging around. It's just a really great, it's a really great tee. They also have golf stuff. And uh, again, I've been very impressed with their golf gear. Um, it, it just looks great, fits great, and uh, is 
super, super stretchy, um, which I like. So uh, go over to uh, their website. They've got a special one for barbell medicine. It's viori.com backslash barbell. So viori is V-U-O-R-I. It's all in the description below. Backslash barbell. You get 20% off your first order. Um, And yeah, support those who support us. What are the treatment tiers for obstructive sleep apnea? Is there any research behind neck, oh, behind training neck, face, and upper body muscles to help with sleep apnea? You know, before we start this, when did you, when did you get the, uh, the diagnosis? I don't know, probably five years ago. Yeah, mine was uh, third year medical school. Dr. recognized the thickness. He didn't look me in the eyes, he looked me right in my neck. He said, how, how big is your neck? I said 17 and a half inches with pride. And he goes, you, you tired? I'm like, every day. <laughs> so I did a home sleep study, and it turns out I was not adequately perfusing oxygen through my system. Most people have, the, it's called the AHI, apnea hypopnea index. Most of the time, it's zero to five times per hour that happens with people who don't have sleep apnea. Uh, mine was happening 41 times. Uh, so, okay, in any case, treatment tiers for obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, we do have a couple podcasts out on sleep medicine. I don't know that we get too far into the weeds there, uh, but I know, for example, there's mild, moderate, severe, and that gives you different sort of treatment options with respect yeah. to like a dental appliance or whatnot. So. Yeah, most patients, it kind of depends on what that score is, but also what their symptoms are, and we kind of make decisions around treatment with that. So for some folks who's relatively mild, maybe in the setting of obesity and some excess tissue and things like that, recommending exercise if they smoke, getting them to not smoke. Um, and then either aiming to achieve and or maintain a healthy BMI, which then opens up the whole obesity lecture with respect to dietary pattern change, again, exercise, potentially the use of medications and things like that can all help uh, improve or in some cases cure sleep apnea for some, for some patients, depending on how much they're able to lose and their predisposing factors. Um, other things like alcohol, sedative use, medications can all exacerbate it. And so getting people to use less of that or none of that can be helpful. Um, a lot of folks will report that they tend to snore and stop breathing more on nights when they drink alcohol, for example. And so that's a behavior that can be modified quite a bit. When it comes to other medical treatments, you mentioned this oral appliance, which I think you have some experience with. That's really mo- modestly effective and yeah. only really used in the mildest cases. Yeah, people with like, you know, 10 or less of those events happening per hour, that's kind of like. The, where you draw the line, we're like, hey, this can reduce the amount of events you're having by about half, which might put you back to normal. Uh, so I do not qualify for that, but I will tell you that I travel with it instead of traveling with my CPAP, mainly because I don't want to like take it out of my bag and do the whole thing. And so I don't particularly like the oral appliance other than I can tolerate it just fine. And it makes me feel like I'm saving my life little by little when I, when I use it at night. Yeah. But uh, yeah, some people, uh, particularly if they have quite mild sleep apnea, they prefer that to the, to the mask. But I like playing Bane at night, you know, yeah, put it on. More advanced cases use this mask system or it might not be a full face mask. There are various things that can go under the nose. There, there are different types that I'll have people uh, work with their kind of per- companies to, to sort out what they can tolerate and what's most comfortable for them because most people don't like it. Nobody really loves it when they first start, but you kind of get the used end, to it over time. Do you do voices when you put yours on? No. No one cared about <laughs> me until I put on them. <laughs> okay, missed opportunity, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And in more, most severe cases, or if somebody's not able to handle the mask, they just uh, surgery can be an option for some folks depending on their facial and throat and tongue and palate anatomy and things like that, but that's a bit on the aggressive side for most folks. Would you recommend Jawser size? 
You're full of jokes today. I Dude, yeah, I'm on it. All right, cool. <laughs> is there a case to be made that higher-end cardiovascular activity such as sprinting or intervals is necessary for, quote, optimal health? Or can you get there with strength training plus lower intensity cardio alone? Many social media gurus in the past year or so have been promoting medium intensity steady state cardio as a magic bullet. Uh, this is a good question. There's uh, some definitions that I would probably go over first. So higher end cardiovascular activity is kind of like open-ended. Uh, you guys are familiar maybe with the different zones of training, zone one, zone two, three, four, five. These are ways to sort of uh, categorize conditioning activities at various levels of intensity. And usually they use heart rate as a proxy. So you think about zone five being the highest, near 100% of your heart rate maximum output, uh, maximum sort of VO2 sort of capacity. Zone one is very easy activity, relatively low heart rate, sustainable for a long time. Uh, and then zone two is a sort of aerobic capacity zone. For most folks, it's somewhere in that 120 to 135, 120 to 140 beats per minute. It really depends on your level of fitness, how old you are, the activity that you're doing, et cetera, but that's kind of the general range. Zone two has probably been getting the most sort of hype uh, in the last year, like just do zone two cardio. As far as is that enough, could you just do that type of conditioning and live a full and complete life without missing anything with respect to health trajectory? The answer is yes. Effectively, if you get to that 500 to 1,000 met minutes per week or higher, by hook or by crook, you're good to go. I can't really differentiate between, oh, you did some zone two and some zone three, some zone two, some zone four. Not gonna really uh, be able to tell that by existing evidence and the stuff we do have, comparing like high intensity interval trainings that would be decidedly zone four, zone five type stuff, compared to lower intensity steady state, which would be zone two, zone three, effectively no difference in uh, health outcomes, provided the training volume is the same. The real linchpin here is the total amount of training volume. So the best part about zone two training is that it's relatively uh, easy to recover from, it's not very fatiguing, which means you can do a lot of it. And if there's a dose-dependent relationship between training volume and the adaptations that we care about, uh, then we can do more of it with zone two stuff without outkicking your coverage with respect to training. So you don't have to do sprints. My thought uh, for like human development is like, let's get all of these adaptations. There are specific ones that occur with high intensity anaerobic intervals. You get better at liberating energy from your muscles and from energy stores, so you can use them very, very quickly, which could be useful in a particular task or sport, but for health, eh, not that, not that important. Yeah, I almost never do sprint conditioning. Yeah. I, I do it a little bit because that's fairly specific for motocross, which is like relatively high intensity. I, I wore my, my watch out there, and so boom, I'm 180 beats per minute uh, and plus within two minutes, and it stays there for the whole moto. <laughs> and so I'm like, I should do some higher intensity stuff. So long story short on that, uh, you don't have to do high intensity interval stuff. There are multiple different ways to do that. Doesn't always have to be anaerobic sprints, could be aerobic intervals at a higher intensity. Imagine you can only run a mile, or you can run a mile at a six minute pace. If I have you run 400 meter sprints um, at a much faster pace, that's not anaerobic, you know, because it's lasting a long period of time. It's an aerobic interval, and it could be useful at improving your mile time, but from a health trajectory standpoint, yeah, probably not a big difference. Yep. Number five. Would you please talk a bit more about your thoughts, okay, 
No. Would you please talk a bit more about your thoughts and the research surrounding the willpower well? I've heard it's a thing and that it's nonsense, each from good sources. What's your take? Uh, well, I will tell you this. I've never seen willpower well in their research. So from that standpoint, it could just be nonsense in that it's not ever been in uh, the research. I just say it to get my point across that this willpower thing or like just trying harder or using motivation is probably not the tool to, uh, or not the thing to say to somebody to get them to change their behavior or adhere to a particular behavior. It's sort of this idea that we have uh, active control over a lot of behaviors that we do that we in fact do not have active control over. A lot of those things from this seminar being like food related behaviors. So what foods that you buy, consume, and how much of it you consume. You can't just willpower your way into changing the entire food environment you are surrounded by. So those, uh, I think it's just a, a lack of understanding of how humans make certain decisions and engage in certain behaviors. You, we are not in control of what we eat. You don't just get to try harder and choose different foods. I know that will be upsetting to many people watching this. They're like, that's BS, man. I choose every day. It's like, <laughs> okay, well, you're going to have a difficult time supporting that using evidence. Um, so you can try a little bit and use sort of mindfulness and, and conscious, the sort of, uh, uh, what, is it, what does Kahneman call it? The uh, phase two or type two sort of thinking where like you're thinking slow. You're thinking slow. Yeah, you can do that a little bit like mm, I'm going to resist the cake this time around. Right. But if the cake's in your home and it persists there, you're going to eat it at some point. Uh, so in any case, uh, I don't know that I would use the term willpower well in a research paper if I were the author. But I would tell you that there are many behaviors that you think you have conscious control over that you def definitively do not particularly around eating and food behaviors. And I would feel very confident in saying that. Yeah, there's not a willpower well that can be scientifically measured or isolated. I think it's just more useful as a concept for something as simple as us having pointed out that, hey, sleep restriction leads to spontaneous and subconscious increases in calorie intake. Mm -hmm. People do not mean to, but when they are sleep restricted, appetite goes up and intake goes up. They did not think about this consciously. They did not choose this consciously, but that's just an example of how one thing can impact the other below the level of the uh, cortex, yeah. the conscious brain. You can't think yourself full. Yeah. Think Good yourself try. not hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck out there. <laughs> Question number six. What are the first levers you pull when a client is pressed for time and wants to work out as efficiently as possible? Say they only have 45 minutes four times per week. I feel like that's a decent amount of time uh, to, to get like some good work in. Yeah. I mean, in general, so, so first thing I do, uh, l reduce the number of exercises that they're going to do. Again, I'm still trying to train all the major muscle groups uh, in the body uh, multiple times per week, uh, but I'm going to limit the number of exercises, usually in this case to about two. And I'm trying at that point to reduce not only rest periods, but also setup time. So I'm doing things like squat, then a press, because the bar's in the rack, you're already there, you're already set up, good to go. Uh, in cases where that's not feasible, so if they're like, I really like deadlifting, but what are you gonna do after a deadlift? I'm like, well, you could do rows. And they're like, well, but I don't wanna do rows, I wanna do bench press. It's like, all right, well, I'm gonna start warming up your bench press while you're doing sets of deadlift. It's not optimal for strength improvement, but it's certainly better than not training or uh, not being able to fit it in your, your schedule and so then uh, missing some adherent stuff. The biggest thing here is that when people say I have 45 minutes four times a week, I'm like, okay, well, I would previously not really care what intensity you were doing your conditioning in as long as it was 
again, either in that moderate to vigorous physical activity stuff, so brisk walking pace or greater, or vigorous intensity, uh, which would be like a slow jog or greater pace. Uh, but in this scenario, I almost might mandate some more vigorous or higher intensity sort of conditioning stuff. So they would lift probably two lifts uh, and then do some conditioning four times a week. And that would be their program. Would it be optimal for strength, hypertrophy, cardiorespiratory fitness development? Not compared to somebody with unlimited resources, but it's optimal for them, and that's the best you know we can do at that point. Um, anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean I've trained in time constrained uh, situations all the time, particularly going through residency, and I used a lot of supersets of kind of antagonistic or, or separate uh, body part areas. Used things like myo reps, used things like amraps, um, and uh, I also recognized at least I was in a period of time where that was likely to be temporary. If it's temporary, then you have an easier time getting through this and justifying it because it, is a, it takes a significantly smaller amount of training to maintain the adaptations that you have accrued to that point uh, compared to continuing to build them. So if it's temporary, you're like, mm, I'm just going like, to hang on here. And sometimes people surprise themselves and they still PR during these periods of time, um, particularly if they're not super well trained or if they are just training harder because they feel like they need to try harder to make up for the you know, time constraint. Um, if it's like an indefinite kind of thing, then may need to take a little bit of a different mental approach to this, but I would still use those similar strategies to get through things. The last thing I would add, and I think if you guys follow me on Instagram, you know, the warm up stuff, like stop doing all of the other things that aren't you warming up for the movement that you're gonna start doing, if you're limited on time. Imagine like a 20 minute foam rolling, mobilization, stretching session. You only got 45 minutes a week to train. It's like, cool, well now I can squat for five minutes and then I can bench for another five minutes. Yeah. And then I gotta do some conditioning. It's like, bro, you just wasted half of it stretching, which has like no health benefits. I know YouTube's gonna be lit on that one. But it's well, like, that's where a couple of the videos that I put up a couple years ago went kind viral. Of, kind of blew up a little bit where I, I forget what exactly I did. I don't I know, time I, to train you like deadlifting. I think I went from zero to 550 and like, three minutes or something like that with just empty bar warm up and go up from there. Yeah. What's, what's the most you've ever loaded on the bar without lifting anything beforehand? Oh, I don't, I've not tried that. We used to have just this cold. Yeah. So we used to have this, comp <laughs> this uh, contest in the gym I used to train at in St. Louis who could squat the most weight without any warm up at all. So you couldn't change shoes, get whatever you're wearing to the gym, you just walk in, load it and got to squat it. Standard Midwest behavior. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hold my beer. Right. And so I did a lot of squatting in slides, for example, that was pre slides yeah, being yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. It got weird though, around 160, 170 kilos, people would start like doing the stanky leg, walking up, try to shake it, you know, get warm, yeah. whatever. Yeah, that was, uh, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, not because I think it's particularly risky, it just doesn't feel good. And uh, big feel good guy, so. Okay, question number seven. Evidence-based recommendations for training with vertigo. I have a client who has been struggling with vertigo and their doctor recommended bed rest for the past three weeks. Client, can, you, can you say that part one more time? The doctor has recommended bed rest for the past three weeks. Client has been home from work, not training, and it is very, very frustrating. Can you perhaps point me in the direction of helpful resources for this? Go start. Oh boy. Can you think of any medical conditions for which outright bed rest for three weeks is the correct recommendation? Not that doesn't require like hospitalization for emergent procedure. In which case you would be operated on right away and yeah, you'd yeah. be mobilized within a day or two post-op. Yeah, yeah. There is, I, I mean, Technically, we have to say, like, this isn't medical advice, et cetera, It's for et cetera. entertainment, there is not nothing. your doctors. <laughs> that I can think of. This, 
Yeah, I struggle to really like come down hard on colleagues who I don't know, but if this is in fact the recommendation that this person was given, this is incorrect. Um, not only is this incorrect, but the problem, the bigger problem here is that this individual does not have a diagnosis. Vertigo is a symptom. It describes this sensation of movement, of spinning. It can be profoundly frustrating. It can be very debilitating. However, there is a lengthy list of causes of vertigo, like lots. Some are relatively benign. Some are potentially life-threatening. At this point, I hope that this individual does not have one of the more life-threatening, what we call central causes um, of vertigo, although there are even some dangerous peripheral ones too, uh, whether the vertigo is coming from the brain, brainstem kind of area, or from the inner ear, the more peripheral areas. But there are benign and dangerous versions of all of those. So uh, this person needs a diagnosis, and it sounds to me like they probably need a new doctor. Oh boy. That would be my oh boy. firm recommendation. Okay. Um, if, this, uh, if, if the primary care person is comfortable evaluating this, then that's fine. If not, they may need to refer. If this ultimately ends up being one of the more common and more benign causes of this, like benign positional vertigo, um, then there's things like vestibular rehab that people can be referred to. It would just be odd, again, to recommend somebody experiencing benign positional vertigo, which is only unmasked by being in certain positions to just like lay in bed for weeks because most of the time they're not gonna have symptoms unless they move into certain positions. So if somebody has uh, acute sustained vertigo, that needs evaluation. Uh, if they have episodic vertigo, that probably also needs evaluation. <laughs> vertigo is not a diagnosis um, and there are things, again, if it proves to be something benign, there are resources and, and things like that that can be referred for, but this is not correct. Yeah, I think you're good. I was, I was getting triggered, but then you did it. I handled that for yeah, you. Yeah, you did. Thank yes. you. <laughs> All right, number eight, being a weightlifter. Just look around and identify the weightlifters. Uh, the social media algorithm serves up lots of videos hawking anabolic steroids. The Natty or Not Bro interviews people in the gym, and there's a frankness and even pride around steroid use. There are obvious benefits, but what about the downsides? I mean, what? yeah, what about them? No. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so there are no biological free lunches, right? You got to give to get, you got to pay to play. Uh, I think particularly in the bodybuilding world, in the strength conditioning world, most people are relatively young, uh, not particularly well trained in medicine. And so this stuff gets handed down from generation to generation to generation. Like, oh, you just do a little bit of this, a little bit of that and you're gonna be fine. Here, uh, at best case scenario, uh, somebody tells you like, you should follow up with this doctor so that they can monitor you over time. But that is not generally what happens. People obtain these anabolic steroids from somebody who brewed them in a bathtub, right? Because they're illegal, all right? And uh, so getting them, it becomes an issue. And because it's all done under wraps, the stuff is not there's no quality control at all, so you don't even know what you're taking, what dose that you're taking. And I don't particularly trust the ethics of drug dealers. Just, this is a general rule. It's like a general... It's probably safe assumption. And again, because you are illegal, kind of done under this cloak of secrecy, people in general aren't seeing physicians uh, or trained healthcare personnel to monitor certain uh, blood levels, certain... Uh, tests uh, to see like, oh wow, your liver enzymes, for example, are way out of range. We should do X, Y, and Z, for example. And then again, there's this distrust in physicians in general. Most people who use anabolic steroids think they know more, way more about this stuff than their doctor, and they may in some cases. So as far as known downsides, 
there are far too many anabolic agents available to discuss all the potential downsides. If you can think of an organ system, there is an anabolic agent that has a negative effect on that potentially if the dose is high enough and if it's sustained for long enough. And if the person uh, and or if the person has been dealt a bad genetic hand in how they metabolize it, tolerate it, and or if the, the steroid itself is contaminated with something else like lead or arsenic or some other thing that uh, you might find in a non-pharmaceutical grade laboratory where these things are being made. Um, so yeah, biggest risks factors would be to general cardiovascular disease that's been very well characterized um, with testosterone, for example. Uh, same thing with uh, prostate uh, cancer uh, for, for individuals that are at risk. Uh, other particularly oral steroids or supplements that are advertised as steroids that are available over the internet for free. Liver, uh, liver uh, health, uh, there's hundreds of cases every year of liver failure that require liver transplant from people taking a pre-workout or some other type of nutraceutical. That's problematic. Kidney disease, I mean, it just doesn't end. Every organ system can be impacted depending on the anabolic agent. So I would say this, if you want to take anabolic steroids, I would recommend talking to you for your physician about this. I doubt they're gonna be stoked about it. Uh, however, if you're going to do it anyway, there are ways to do it with this, harm, this idea of harm reduction in mind, meaning regular sort of monitoring, an agreed upon like cut level. You're like, look, if your blood levels of this get so high, I am very concerned that you're gonna go down a bad path that we potentially cannot come back from. So maybe we agree that we would stop things here. I don't know that there are a lot of physicians that would be agreeable to that, but yeah. in a perfect utopian world. You're gonna have to seek one out. That's yes. Be limited. And yeah. don't buy stuff that people make in their bathtubs. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you where to get this stuff from. I don't know. I'm just telling you like, <laughs> Vinny at Gold's Gym is probably not the source. <laughs> Unless he happens to be a pharmacist, in which case, okay. But there's deeper issues here as far as like, criminalization of this and, and, and sort of the stigma in the United States in particular around people who use this stuff. It's just all done behind closed doors and so really creates an opportunity for a lot of people to have bad outcomes. Yeah. Anything else you want to add to that? You don't want to talk about, talk about juice? Not great for you. Okay. Yeah. Like <laughs> juice? Yeah. Okay, the other one. There is a new company, oh f there. <laughs> There's a new company advertised on Instagram that provides a $2,500 full body scan that supposedly scans for cancer, clots, injuries, and various health markers. With our current medical system slash insurance, do you think this is a potential step in preventative care? No. <laughs> Definitively, no. Austin? This is usually my topic, but it seems I got the I just did desired it. reaction. God. <laughs> yeah. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Uh, so one, there is no full body scan that can do that. That does not exist. People will sell you that it's marketing, okay? Because people think it's better to know. Like you wanna know all this stuff. They assume that it's very, very specific and sensitive and can identify things that you can do to otherwise better your health trajectory, but you've been sold a bill of goods that is untrue. It's based on false information by people with no medical training, but rather more marketing training. And then you have other idiots on social media that are blasting this saying, this is good, look what it did for me. All trash. Yeah, I mean, the idea of like early diagnosis, early detection, more information is always better. The basis of that is just like vibes. I think that's what they Yeah, say, trust right? me, bro. <laughs> yeah, just because it sounds good, it yeah. sounds right. 
Um, but we have talked about this a lot over the years. We have a whole podcast dedicated to the topic of screening. I've talked about this elsewhere, but more information is definitively not better. There is a substantial amount of the time when you do not want to know these things. In addition, I made the case and I described to you uh, earlier during the pain lecture that a lot of these imaging tests are not even really as reliable and as trustworthy as you might think. There's prone to false positives and false negatives. So you may very well find something on these tests that has no real implication for your health and then you're worried about it for the rest of your life. What is the meaning of this thing that was found that would have not necessarily otherwise been found ever? Screening means doing tests to people who look fine, who feel fine, who have no complaints. The idea being that if we can identify something, that there is something that we can do to alter their health outcomes. There are multiple criteria that need to be satisfied in order to justify this kind of thing. It needs to be a condition that is a broad health problem, meaning it's common. We don't screen for super, super rare conditions because then our tests do even worse at finding things. We have even more false positives. So it needs to be a relatively common condition. If we find it, there should be a treatment for it that works. That's the next step. So we don't screen for untreatable medical conditions. That treatment should be cost effective. It should be accessible, right? So we don't screen for things where the treatment is a medicine that costs half a million dollars a year. Impractical for the health system, broadly speaking. And so there are, there are additional criteria that we laid out in our podcast, but again, people assume that just testing and finding more things is better. There Get are a direct, full body scan. Or not just a full body scan, but there are companies that pair up with a lot of uh, fitness industry folks to market blood tests. Just get blood, just get tested. Here's my company. You can get all these tests. Isn't this awesome? We'll give you like a little stoplight system, red, red, yellow, green. Some of you might know what I'm talking about here. Tests that you are untrained to interpret, particularly in with no context, with no symptoms, with no complaints. And then I'm going to make recommendations based on things. Uh, or you're going to panic because your mean platelet volume was uh, just in the red, which is uninterpretable. Or you're a boron level I wouldn't as even well. know what to do with that, right? So test interpretation, be it blood tests, be it imaging tests, is difficult. There's a reason it takes years of training to achieve uh, comp competence in this. Um, so definitively do not recommend people get full body scans. You're going to find a whole bunch of stuff that nobody knows what to do with, is going to freak you out, and then you're going to go around find, trying to find a doctor who's going to do things to you that you probably never needed in the first place. And same goes for blood tests. Outside of getting your blood pressure checked, and getting your blood lipids checked, and then a limited set of diagnostics if you have specific complaints, problems going on. Otherwise, just like live your life. Don't try to turn yourself into a patient. You'd rather not be a patient. Be normal. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to medicalize all these things. Yeah. And uh, also $2,500, like, invest that money, do something better. I am not a trained financial uh, professional. <laughs> do whatever you want with your money, just don't give it to these so. All right, dude, also this one? We can skip that. We no, can, we're we can, good. You can read that yeah. after this. All right, we're how last would, couple. <laughs> question number 10, how would you program, train, and give diet timing advice for people fasting for long periods of time like Ramadan? Uh, yeah, so there's actually a pretty good amount of data on Ramadan and how it affects things like lean body mass, strength performance, uh, weight uh, trajectory, body composition, et cetera. And in general, these individuals do just fine do just fine, meaning that they don't actually need some top secret or proprietary approach to this. And that kind of jives with what we've been saying all weekend. A lot of this is based on preferences. All right, now if it was me, if it was me and I had to do this, so I would be uh, sort of giving you my bias, I would wanna make sure I 
eight before I exercise, so I'd be exercising at night or first thing in the morning when I woke up beforehand to eat. But if it's me, I hate training first thing in the morning, so it seems unlikely. Uh, so rather, once I got to eat something at night, I would go straight from there to the gym, train, come back, eat, pass out, wake up in the morning before sun came up, ate, eat again, and then fast all day. That's how I would personally do it, but those are my preferences, which may not be the same as somebody else's, somebody, uh, their, their preferences. Um, would you do it differently than me? Uh, probably not. I mean, I also think Ramadan falls during different periods of the year, uh, uh, certain times. And so the days can be shorter or longer and that might impact whether totally. I chose to eat and train in the morning or eat and train in the evening. I'm also told, you, I feel like caffeine is out also during Ramadan. It seems like something that would, would. I can't help with that. I don't know. No caffeine during the day. Cause I was thinking that maybe I would train towards the end, like right before I could break my fast and I would just uh, do some caffeine and, and do the thing. <laughs> but if I can't do that, like I'm out, I'm training late night. That's like residency. That was fun. You know, train, driving through LA at like 1 a.m. after you just got done working out? It's a ghost town. <laughs> Excellent. This can be our last one, I think. Oh, you want to read it? Sure. Yeah, you read it. See how triggered you get. Well, I think, yeah, I think you'll like this. So uh, we mentioned that lifestyle interventions for weight loss at 10 to 20 years of follow-up is on average about 0%. Um, this serves as a mean without discussion of distribution, but the modern too long didn't read version reads 0% weight loss. Pessimistic people will read this a certain way. Similarly, evidence cited for cholesterol reduction is a relatively small proportion that's within our control through lifestyle means. In this context, telling somebody the facts appears to be implying an incorrect truth of it is entirely outside of your control. This is despite the concurrent fact that there's a large amount of room to make personal change. People who believe in self-efficacy will succeed despite these data. People who lack self-efficacy will self-select out uh, for the end result of failure. Would we be noceboing them into failure with these data? Uh, even if they directly ask for these facts. So how do you square those uh, those things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think telling people the current state of things is fine, uh, provided they want this information. Otherwise, like I would rarely actually talk about this with a patient unless they asked or were curious. Uh, but from a, like, if they did ask and then they got super bummed, they're like, what do you, I can't, I can't do the things? I'm like, no, we were just focusing on the wrong things that you can control. Uh, so for example, you can, you have some control over your food environment, some control over your eating environment, I just more or less depending on the uh, person. Um, but that's where I would focus my energy rather than just eating less and moving more. So the focus on uh, a lot of the behaviors, I think is that's what you want to change, but the upstream, it should be focused upstream on things that cause the behavior. So that's how I kind of square this. And then further that, Hey, because these things are relatively unsuccessful. We have room to intensify the intervention to go up rather than this is all we have because that's not true either. Uh, and sort of preparing somebody for like a contingency plan, I think also kind of gives them a lay of the land. Here's what might be coming next. And uh, I think that fosters not only this long-term relationship where you can uh, help the person be successful given their response, but also gives them a more realistic sort of well, how, oh, what role do I play in this? Because if they think, look, this is the only option you have and it's, you know, here are your odds. Uh, yeah, that might bum somebody out, but having this sort of, look, we've got some additional things we can do that will help. I think that maybe uh, makes the picture a little rosier. Yeah, I think that I can uh, maybe, I don't know, make a useful analogy here because these data can help us to set some kind of average expectation, right? And averages, again, do have distributions. But in terms of expectations, think about when you scroll through, say, you know, fitness social media 
what kind of expectations that sets for people, right? They scroll through powerlifting social media and it's like, oh, everybody is squatting 600 pounds and that's the expectation. And if I fall drastically short of that, as the overwhelming majority of people will, that they are failures and they should feel bad about themselves, right? Can translate similar expectations to where if the idea is that most people, they can just willpower themselves through a diet and successfully achieve 20% weight loss and sustain it. Definitively not the case based on these things, but if the assumption is that that's the expectation, then falling short of that makes you feel bad, come down on yourself, and then you add on top of that all the stigma against those intensified things. It's like, I'm a failure because I needed the use of medications or surgery or something like that to achieve this goal. So I think that having conversations with people to work through these beliefs and feelings, and if somebody has these kind of fatalistic tendencies um, around these outcomes, but rather that here are kind of average expectations. We see people who blow this out of the water. We see people who kind of struggle a little bit, and here's kind of where things end up on average, but that helps to make it so that it almost normalizes the idea that this is hard, right? Pe different people are gonna have different experiences and to destigmatize the use of these additional tools that we have to improve the outcomes we actually care about, right? You don't, get, you don't do better or get a prize for going through life without the use of these things. And so if, they, if you stand to benefit from them with relatively low risk, go for it, right? If you can achieve that and sustain it through the lifestyle means, that's great but there's nothing wrong with the rest. And so I think it helps to make the expectations a little bit more realistic, which we have these conversations a lot with lifters. Like we'll get, we've gotten, you know, email inquiries and DMs from, from you know, late teen, early 20s lifters, like sometimes all around the world. Remember like a 18 year old dude from India emailed wanting to work with us. He's like, I wanna win IPF Worlds in like the 74 kilo weight class or something. And it's like, bro, yeah. <laughs> first of all, do you know who's in that weight class? Yeah, sure. But additionally, <laughs> That is like, I mean, I think probably it's safe to assume that person's been on a lot of social media seeing a lot of these things. That is not like the norm expectation that should be set for somebody who's just getting, getting into the game, so. Yeah, I would just say to add, to add, I don't know that I would ever tell somebody who's gonna start a lifestyle change, like dietary pattern change, like, hey, on average, most people don't lose much weight at 10 and 20 years. I, I mean, I just, I would I would not either. If yeah. they directly asked, I, yeah, would again discuss the average, and then some people do this, other people do that. But uh, you know, this stuff is already out there too in the ether, so I don't, I don't know that's particularly surprising. Yeah. All right, let's finish on this last one. Just you know, I feel like it's a good one. All Take right, cool. it away, man. How can we start to affect change to introduce little girls to strength sports? Can we somehow do that on an individual level slash community level? Uh, yeah. So this is like a top-down issue. Uh, so at every level of sport there is an underrepresentation of women. So women in positions of power in sports organizations, women in positions of policy making with respect to financial allocation, opportunities to participate, all the way down to the local level and just opportunities to participate. And I don't know that that's just reflective of the societal view towards women participating in sport, but it's certainly not helping, even though I think that is changing over time. So as far as what can we do, uh, one, the thing that you can do as an individual, particularly in your gym, is make it a inviting space, an inclusive space for women to train. And so uh, trying to change your gym culture or making sure your gym culture is inviting can be useful. Uh, additionally, if you have young women in your family uh, or in your social circle, um, encouraging them to maybe come with you to the gym 
or if they express interest in particular sports, or if you ask them if they're interested in sports, helping them along the way. Some of this, uh, some uh, individuals would benefit from a helping hand or additional support at getting to practice, getting to play, uh, something like that. And so if you can help out in that way, that'd be great. Volunteering uh, also at various levels can be useful because they just need more staff. So there's just really endless opportunities, but this is a top-down problem. So barbell medicine, like one of our, our aims is to increase the participation of women in exercise because they're more likely to not meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines than men. And so my thought, and you know, there's multiple facets to this, is if we can have more well-trained subject matter experts that are women in the game, in the strength game, that's not only a better example, but also likely to attract more women. Then more women are gonna train. And so that's, that's the idea. So um, I think more, more experts that are women in the field is gonna help. I think more women participating is also obviously gonna make it more normalized, see women on TV, see women uh, doing uh, sports and exercise and lifting. Um, and then as, if you can volunteer or support people uh, in your local community, making your gym uh, an inviting space, that would all be helpful. You had an interesting experience with your wife because Lorraine is an absolute awesome athlete yeah and she had you know support obviously the whole the whole way athletic family helped yeah yeah for sure athletic. just a lot of oppor- <laughs> lot of opportunities but like seeing that stuff obviously is, is going to be useful and mm-hmm. i'm sure she would have some comments uh, on this as well yeah anything you want to add to that <clears throat> okay that's it that's a wrap thank you guys so much for coming all right that's a wrap on episode 224 of the barbell medicine podcast special thanks to david osorio at crossfit south brooklyn love coming to your gym thank you so much for having us also thanks to tom capitelli for recording the audio make sure to check out our sponsors and all the links in the description below we've got new merchandise on the website we've got new live events published and uh, links to all of our content as well but before you go anywhere please leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness from everyone here at barbell medicine we'll see you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.